Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome into Three Martini Lunch. We've made it to Friday. Congratulations to all of us. Jim Garrity's here, the National Review. Between two scorpions, I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We've got good, crazy, and crazy martinis today, Jim. But I was just thinking earlier today, the Bears-Redskins game, that was this week. The climate strike, that was this week, right? Yeah, but a lot's happened since then, Greg. <laughs> That's amazing. We've all aged 50 years, it feels. <laughs> like four days. All right. So let's get to our uh, good martini here. At least it's good martinis for uh, conservatives in the, in the sense that uh, if you think the Democrats are rushing to impeachment, which they are, you're getting some help from an unlikely source. In fact, unlikely source says the Democrats have said that they're probably not going to have a lot more hearings. They might have impeachment articles as soon as a month from now. So, Jim, the last time the Democrats did a lot of stuff behind closed doors and rushed it was Obamacare. So I'm sure it'll go just fine. (laughs) Let's talk about some people who think that the Democrats are uh, a little bit ahead over their skis here. Let's start with uh, David Brooks over at The New York Times. He's the notoriously pro-Trump New York Times. <laughs> yes. yes. It says Democrats proceed with the impeachment process that will happen amid candidate debates, primaries and caucuses. Elections give millions and millions of Americans a voice in selecting the president. This process gives 100 mostly millionaire senators a voice in selecting the president. As these two processes unfold simultaneously, the contrast will be obvious. People will conclude the Democrats are going ahead with impeachment in an election year because they don't trust the Democratic process to yield the right outcome. Democratic elites to voters, we don't trust you. Too many of you are racist. All right, so let's go to another Trump hater, as Jim pointed out in the uh, morning jolt today. Surely he's going to have the popcorn all ready to go. That would be uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich. But guess what? You just don't say, okay, I read a newspaper article or I saw one transcript and therefore throw the guy out of office. I think it is a long process and there has to be more, in my opinion. You're just not there yet. You, but, but, well, hold, let me ask you well, something. I'm not hold there on. yet because we haven't gotten very far yet other than a lot of headlines and things that we read like the transcript, which I've just said is, is really upsetting. Uh, look, I'm not going to support Trump. I didn't support him the last time. I'm not going to support him again. I don't think he's conducting himself appropriately in that office, not just these things, but dividing our country. You know, but that's a long way from impeachment. Jim, that was on CNN. Allison Camerata there was the one who was uh, shell-shocked that John Kasich wasn't on board with impeachment yet. I think Kasich's line of, uh, I'm not there yet because we haven't gotten very far yet, might be the most rational thing he's said in years. Yeah, um, it's, it's right up there with my dad was a mailman. <laughs> Um, no, okay. So first of all, I mean, like credit to both of them. I also mentioned my uh, semi-former colleague Jonah Goldberg. Jonah's still with NR, still running his columns, but he's off going to form his own thing. And you know, none of these people are Trump fans. None of these people. In fact, all three of them say that what the what President Trump did in that conversation and his overall approach to Ukraine um, and the you know inquiries about dirt on the Bidens. All, they say, look, that is a quid pro quo. This is very serious. But none of them are itching to impeach for a variety of reasons. Um, I think one of the interesting things where, you know, David Brooks is basically trying to warn Democrats saying this could backfire very badly on you. And I don't think that David Brooks is a guy who's going out of his way to imagine ways this could uh, go badly for Democrats. I, I think, you know, David Brooks very much doesn't want Trump to get reelected. And he's very straight up pointing out this could, you know, very much lead to this, that there is not a consensus anywhere near this. Now, look, there's some polling. It looks like it's coming up to about the 50-50 category. 
Um, you, you know, the, the Republicans oppose it, Democrats support it, and independents are, at least at this point, around 50-50. You know, that's not a great situation to head into an impeachment. Ask Republicans back in 98 and 99. Um, you want to have, if you look, we've never done this in our history, right? So you would assume that what's going, with the, the, the threshold would be at, you know, at the minimum on par with Watergate and ideally worse. You, ideally, you'd want to say this is a really huge deal that everybody left, right, and center can be upset about. So far, they're not there yet. And we talk about this during the week. I think the fact that the, all of this, all, all of these folks who clearly are, are you know, not reflexive defenders of the president are saying, at minimum, take your time with this. Um, this came out, and I mentioned this in the morning jolt as well, the same time as a report in the Washington Post that the congressional Democrats, I, I'm not making this up. This is not a Top Gun joke. They honest to goodness said the quote, they feel the need for speed. <laughs> now, I'm sure you're picturing Tom Cruise and, and Anthony Edwards high-fiving and, uh, uh, you know, in front of the Jets and, and ready to go and all that stuff. But this isn't something you should be feeling the need for speed on. My sneaking suspicion is that they've felt like with the Russiagate and all the other things that have happened, this, this nagging sense that, you know what, any scandal that comes to light in front of the, the American public, eventually they get used to it. Eventually they get kind of, okay, that's uh, Trump being Trump. Um, and also this, the clock is working against them, as I pointed out in the jolt quite a few times. The closer you get to ge- the, the general election, the sillier it seems to be attempting to remove the president. Um, the American people are going to have their chance to weigh in. And the more you press forward to this, the more people are going to say, huh, is this Democrats worried they're not going to be able to beat Trump on Election Day? It's not hard to shake this out. And, and as I laid out in today's jolt, if the Democrats really want to say, like, there's no way to, to get around the fact that impeachment inevitably is the undoing of an election. The American people elected a president. You go through the impeachment process. and You say, you know what, America, you can't have that president. He has done something so wrong that we cannot allow his presidency to continue. Democrats, if you're going to go ahead and own this, right? be straightforward about it. Say, yes, we are undoing the 2016 election. We have decreed that even if you want him, America, you can't have him. Polling numbers don't change right and wrong. Polling numbers don't change the law. This is too important to be left to the electorate in 2020. Not only would be very popular, but I think it'd be honest. And I think actually maybe some people might be won over by Democrats if they're honest about it, instead of, you know, if they, instead of trying to pretend, oh, that we certainly have been trying to do this since day one with this president. <laughs> and we certainly haven't been saying, it's not like our members have been saying, you know, impeach the bleepity bleep since the moment they got the House majority in January. So we've had two impeached but not convicted presidents in our history, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton had already been reelected at the time of his impeachment. Andrew Johnson actually got impeached in 1868, which was an election year. Democrats actually decided not to give him the nomination for their party in 1868. Still didn't matter. They lost the election. What's the impact here? Let's say he is impeached but not convicted, and then the Republicans are pretty much stuck in a situation where they have to renominate the guy, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the president's going to re. I think Republicans are renominate the guy. The fact that there wasn't any significant push to get rid of Trump after the 2018 midterms that was the one thing where you might have said Republicans like, oh God, this guy's a, a, a disaster. There's no way this guy's getting reelected. His political instincts are terrible. We've got to ditch this guy and either run Pence or find somebody else or something like that. You know, you look at the numbers for, uh, uh, you know, Mark Sanford and Walsh and all the rest. 
Uh, it's pretty clear that's that scenario is not going to happen. I wrote yesterday, this hardens the, 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 the battle lines. This turns into the Battle of the Somme. I don't think anybody comes out of this process looking better. Um, I think that uh, if you're, as, as we discussed yesterday, uh, if you use plenty to gripe about what Trump's doing, uh, like I said, I think it's a pretty straight up unpresidential, this is a quid pro quo. This is true. Yeah, I think it's exactly what it appears to be. He's strong arming Ukraine saying, hey, you haven't been very good to us. We're being very generous to you. I expect you to find some dirt on the Bidens. But the flip side of that is that A.O. Schiff is making up stuff. <laughs> it is uh, making up quotes in his opening statement before the committee yesterday. I think a lot of Americans look at this and don't feel particularly uh, warm and fuzzy towards either side in all this. Um, and I think there might be the, the whole reason the impeachment number polls much more badly than Trump's actual approval numbers, that there is a chunk of the American people out there who don't like Trump, but who also don't like the idea of the Congress saying, you know what, you can't have that president. So, also, this gives Trump either way. If he, if he gets reelected, you know, you're going to see him twerking on the White House lawn. Um, this is a guy who's, he, he, you know, this will be the ultimate vindication. When the Senate refuses to remove him from office, he'll count that as a victory. If by some miracle you don't have 218 House Democrats who want to vote for this, that too is a huge. Like all, all of these could turn into very uh, big deals. Trump turned the, the Mueller report into a big victory and total exoneration. Anything short of removal from office, he's going to insist it. But let's assume they impeach Trump. Trump loses the re-election in 2020. Trump has his built-in excuse for the rest of his life, right? This idea of, I could have won re-election, but the Democrats played their dirty trick and did impeachment because impeachment muddied the waters and all that stuff. America's just wanted, just wanted to, to move on to the other one. Um, also, I think it's also it's possible that the backlash. Look, my, my I know Trump's polling very badly right now, Greg. My sneaking suspicion is that there's a chunk of voters out there who are supporting Trump but don't want to tell anybody. Right. Um, you know, the, the sheer amount of demonization, the way people get targeted for their donations, harassment, trying to knock red hats off each other. There is a chunk of people out there who support this president but don't want to say so in public may not even want to say so in front of their family members, et cetera, et cetera. The only way they're going to express that support is in the ballot box. Now, does this mean I think Trump's going to win? I have no idea. I have no idea whether this is 1% of the population. I have no idea if this is 5% of the electorate. It's probably not huge, but it could be decisive. So we'll see how things shake out here. Um, but man, if I'm the Democrats, you know, like there was a reason Nancy Pelosi was trying to get them to not do this for the better part of the year. I'm not so sure. You know, we'll, we'll see if the polling numbers change, but I don't see uh, this turning into this giant, instant, you know, broad bipartisan consensus in favor of Trump's impeachment. Yeah, I think those days are behind us. But, Jim, you mentioned Mike Pence there in passing. How do you think Pence felt the other day at the U.N. when Trump said, oh, you got a problem with my Ukraine call? You know who else had a lot of Ukraine calls that were also perfect was Mike Pence. I'm sure he just you, loved that. You think that he has reference. Bolton on speed dial? <laughs> hey, John, it's Mike. Just... Let it all out. <laughs> anything you ever had that didn't seem to agree with the president? Everything? Yeah, even that one, that time in the meeting. That's right. Just, just you know, let it all out. <laughs> I mean, I've always had the attitude that every time Trump did something controversial or silly or scandalous or something like that, you, know, you notice Mike Pence never seems all that upset by it. He never seems ruffled. He seems like a guy who has a, you know, his pulse rate peaks at 55, even at peak, you know, exercise. <laughs> And my sneaking suspicion is that every day Mike Pence looks at himself in the mirror and just kind of hums hail to the chief. It's a win-win, either as vice president or as president. There's no way this goes bad for him. 
Oh, man. All right, let's talk about uh, our double crazies here. Let's start with the first one. You know, Jim, when we were uh, coming of age in politics in the 80s and certainly the early 90s, one of the things that we heard all the time, particularly starting with the 1992 presidential race, leave the president's kids out of it. That was when Chelsea Clinton was uh, obviously the daughter of the Democratic nominee, Bill Clinton. She was like 12 or 13 years old, kind of an awkward age. Few people made fun of her. And pretty much the universal backlash was, oh, leave her alone. She's a kid. Uh, Pay attention to the parents and what they're doing. Then we got George W. Bush. His daughters were right on the cusp of adulthood there when he got elected. I think they were college freshmen uh, when he took office. And so they got caught a couple times underage drinking. And then the debate flared up again. Are they fair game? Are they not fair game? Well, now it's flared up again. But this time it's absolutely absurd. So apparently Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas was a guest on Hugh Hewitt's radio show. And Hugh Hewitt decided to tweet about what they had talked about. He said, from Senator Tom Cotton this a.m., there's a young woman in her 20s in Arkansas who has filed a paternity suit in Arkansas State Court against Hunter Biden, and he's dodging the process and has done so for months. He's literally hiding out from process servers so he doesn't have to submit to a DNA test. Well, enter Michael Barbaro. No relation, I assume, to the Kentucky Derby winning horse from a few years back. Uh, <laughs> I think so, Greg. I think, I think they're on safe ground on that. Let's, let's do the DNA test just to make sure. As long as you're talking about DNA, you might as well. So he's the host of the Daily Podcast. Please don't judge all podcast hosts the same. So he responds to Hugh Hewitt's tweet by saying, as this fellow, meaning Hewitt, circulates personal attacks on a candidate's child, Remember, he's paid by NBC and MSNBC. Candidate's child, Jim. Hunter Biden is, let's see, 13, 14, 49 years old. Yeah, I mean, literally, yes, he is the child of Joe Biden. Um, (laughs) Usually, when you hear the term child, you think of someone under 18 and maybe well under 18. Um, If this podcast is reaching you a little bit later than usual today, dear listeners, it is in part because I was very slow to respond to Greg's message. Hey, time to start the podcast. Uh, in part because I am doing a very long and detailed piece collecting everything we've ever heard about Hunter Biden and his various clients from his lobbying days, from the China deal, from the Ukraine deal, from the hedge fund he tried to form, everything. It's bad, my fellow Americans. It is, there are all kinds of cases in which, as I said, at minimum, there's the appearance of a conflict of interest. And it's really kind of mind-boggling how little attention this has gotten over the years. Uh, I'll give you just one good, one simple example of this. 2008, uh, you know, Trump, I'm mean, sorry, uh, Obama picks Biden to be his running mate. Um, and they you know, openly are saying to the New York Times, you know, they acknowledge the connection between the Bidens and MBNA, the enormous financial services company then based in their home state of Delaware, was one of the most sensitive issues they examined while vetting the senator for a spot on the ticket. It's not just that, you know, that stuff, but also like, You know, Biden will always say, look, my son never lobbied me on anything. No, but Hunter Biden lobbied Barack Obama on earmarks. Barack Obama sought more than $3.4 million in congressional earmarks for clients of Hunter Biden over the years. And Obama succeeded in getting $192,000 for one of the clients, St. Xavier University in suburban Chicago. Oh, by the way, Greg, sure, Hunter Biden didn't lobby his father. But other lobbyists at his firm lobbied his father and Joe Biden gave your marks. So when they say, oh, my son never lobbied me. Yes, that part is true. However, when the guy at the next cubicle <laughs> calls up and says, hey, can you do this earmark? And Biden says, sure. A lot of people are going to say, what's the difference? When Hunter Biden calls up uh, uh, 
Obama's office is, hey, I got this earmark, you know, it'd be really good. You know, and Obama does it instead of Biden. Does it get any better? Does it become more moral or more ethical? Um, and this sort of thing was going on throughout the Biden's careers. It's it's bad. Now, in the previous podcast, Greg and I have talked about being a politician's son is not easy. Hunter Biden clearly has struggled with addiction, all kinds of other issues. And for everything else aside from this, I hope the guy gets his life together. It sounds like he's on the straight and narrow now. And I hope I hope I wish him well in all of this stuff. Having said that, he's made a really good living for most of his adult life from being Joe Biden's son. And it's really kind of amazing how much the entire political world has chosen to avert its eyes from this situation. So, um, no, sir, he's not a child. <laughs> and he's completely fair game in discussion of the 2020 presidential campaign. But Chelsea Clinton's still off limits, right? Because she's, you know, almost 40. This is like one of those things that's almost been erased from people's memories, never mind from the archives. There was an entire, like, sketch of Wayne's World on Saturday Night Live where they kind of made, actually, there was, like, several sketches which they made fun of, of Chelsea Clinton. And looking back, it really is kind of tasteless and it really is kind of mean. Chelsea Clinton did not choose her parents and she was this awkward 13 year old. And I say that all of us were awkward at age 13 or 14 or whatever it was. <laughs> yes. Mike Myers apologized, Saturday Night Live apologized. And to the best of my knowledge, they've never run those sketches again. In fact, I think on Wayne's World, they're doing a top 10 list and they're talking about the top 10 babes. And I think the joke was that Chelsea Clinton was on you know, ranking six or something. And they said she's a babe in training or something like that. And it just came across. I think if you watch when they replay the sketches now, it jumps from like seven to five with no indication that there was a number six in that or something. It probably is a right call. Whatever you think of Chelsea Clinton isn't a grown up, you know, as a kid, she hadn't done anything to piss you off. So, you know, leave her, leave her be. Um, and yeah, I think that should be the role. The Obama daughters, they're outside the political. When, when the Obama daughters go out and start giving speeches and start making political stances, and they're over age 18, fine. Then they're fair game. Kids don't choose their parents. So, you know, concentrate your firepower on the on the parents. And I don't mean assassinations. <laughs> Rhetorical firepower. Well, if you're stressed about that, you've got nothing on Prince Harry. Prince <laughs> Harry, according to the Daily Beast, is so crushed by the state of the planet that he sometimes struggles to get out of bed in the morning. He uh, made the, these comments to a reporter from the Daily Telegraph. And the actual quote Makes it seem like he's got issues with all sorts of problems around the world, not just uh, the global warming or climate change crisis or whatever we refer to it now. But as we uh, go further down, it points out that Harry's comments drew immediate comparison to the doom-mongering of his father, Prince Charles, who said in July that there were just 18 months left to save the world. So just 16 now. Ahead of last week's global climate strike, during which children were encouraged to skip school to protest the response to climate change, Researchers warn that children are increasingly suffering anxiety and grief about climate change and urge parents to discuss the issue with their kids in an age-appropriate way. Even further than this, Jim, a spokesperson for the Climate Psychology Alliance. Yes, this actually exists, apparently. A group of psychologists and researchers said, quote, there is no doubt that they are being emotionally impacted, that real fear from children needs to be taken seriously by adults. And that, of course, harkens back to something like this that we heard. Yes, it was actually this week. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. So, Jim, I don't think the parents need to take the kids' anxiety seriously. They need to stop giving them the anxiety in the first place. That is uh, a parenting tip from Greg Columbus <laughs> that I would heartily endorse 100%. In fact, I think Greg Columbus has lots of uh, parenting tips that are good for you. Um, I got three separate thoughts on this, uh, Greg, but the first one is 
So, can empty words steal things? <laughs> I mean, I, they're bad, you know. Yeah, but you know, like, like you know, politicians are always full of empty words, you know. But so, does that actually steal something, or isn't it just kind of like it's just you're, you're making a promise that's not there? So, anyway, there's that, you know. So, there's that aspect of her her in stinging indictment, the you know, the denunciation heard around the world. Um, but the other thing is, if your first name is Prince, or your title is Prince. I don't want to hear you singing the blues <laughs> unless you're in, unless you're from Minnesota as in the late performer Prince um, or your Hamlet. He's, he's, he's got justifiable, you know, the melancholy Dane. Okay, fine. You can complain beyond that. I don't want to hear how hard it is to get out of bed. And this is kind of a blanket comment of if you got a private jet, I don't want to hear you complaining about carbon emissions. Yeah, this this is one of the things that makes it just in, in so insufferable um, when the people who are wealthiest, the people who are celebrities, the people who have single greatest wealth and influence and, and you know, uh, luxuries of life you could ever imagine, start start telling us how hard all this is on them. Shut up. Go away. Stop. You know, like. You, you, know, you are the last people in the world who should be complaining. And particularly when they start saying, oh, and other people need to start giving up. No, 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 no. You guys give up the private jet. Somebody, when I wrote about this earlier, because there are at least a couple of environmental writers and activists who are like, hey, when everybody flies their private jet to the climate change summit, it, it looks bad, right? We, people don't believe you that you take the, that this is a serious problem if you're doing something that emits way more carbon for one flight than the amount of money that than the amount of carbon a family puts out an entire year. So there are a few lefties who are, are up in arms about this. Uh, but somebody put it to me, uh, Jim, if they gave up their private jets, would you be willing to sacrifice too? And I thought about it. It's a tough challenge. I mean, I don't think we'll ever see it. But yeah, the day that happens, Greg, you know what I'm willing to say, Greg? I will give up private jets, too. (laughs) I've got this image in my head now of uh, boarding a plane with Prince Charles having boarded first, but he's in the middle seat. So you just got to say, hey, I got got the window. (laughs) Your Highness, I believe the armrest is supposed to go down. (laughs) But here's the reason Prince Charles is not king right now. You know, his mom's, what is she, 93 now? So... He doesn't know how to properly cast a crisis. See, these climate change people, they know. Put it out a decade. Put it 12 years uh, that that the planet's going to implode. Prince Charles throws out 18 months. You're not going to get anything done in 18 months. Then you've got to move the goalposts again. If you only do it once a decade, Mm -hmm. people forget how often you move them. Uh, See, political instincts just aren't there with him. Yeah, the only thing I would think of, uh, Greg, is if he said something, you know, you have to understand climate change will be irreversible and having dire effects on humanity in 15 years, probably the final years of my mother's time on the phone. She's apparently going to live forever. God bless her. God save the queen. Oh. You know, she never meddles in this kind of stuff, right? It's one of the reasons everybody loves her, you know, besides the fact that she's tough as hell and did that video with her Yorkies and telling James Bond to go out to do stuff and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, we feel kind of bad about everything that happened with Drebin at the baseball game back in the late 80s. The Queen never gives us any grief about anything. So no, me. not even Boris Johnson. He's like, I want to suspend Parliament. Okay, whatever. Very well. <laughs> Excellent. Jim, well, we'll still wait for the day we got to elbow Prince Charles when he's snoring on a long flight across the country. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but uh, we can dream. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. Between Two Scorpions, I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. If you don't already, please head over to iTunes and subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. And if you like us, please give us a really nice review. And have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday on the next Three Martini Lunch.